I encourage you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 33. So we continue to make our way through the prayer book of the Bible. Here, this is God's inspired Word teaching us how to pray. Uh, And giving us pastoral care and instruction on how to direct and even redirect our faith in times of trouble. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. All of His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and puts the deeps into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I think this psalm uh, invites us to ask a very simple yet profound question. Where is it that you look in times of trouble? What is it that you do in the midst of trouble? You think of all the things that our hearts naturally want to do when uh, affliction uh, comes our way. We moan and sigh. We uh, tend towards grumbling and complaining. Perhaps we might uh, retreat and fidget or have hearts that are overrun, overrun by anxiety and doubt. I have a friend this particular week who texted me and uh, has been able to secure a new housing situation from what was uh, prior a very uh, difficult one. And this particular friend said, please pray for me as my heart is so prone 
uh, to fretting and thinking that the Lord's going to take these, these, these answers to prayer and, and pull it out under my feet as a rug. What is it that we look towards and find our strength and security in? What is, to use the, the phrase of a security blanket, uh, what is that security blanket that you have in the midst of toil and trouble? Do we lean on our own finances, our own friends or family? Not necessarily a bad thing, but it certainly becomes troublesome if that is the thing that we find our greatest security in. Or do we look towards our own faithfulness, hoping for the sheer force of will to get us through uh, those particular trials? I think we've all tasted those moments when all of these things have failed. Uh, if you have not experienced that, my guess is you will sooner or later experience those moments where you come to the end of your rope and you feel like you are hanging by a thread. Well, here this evening, this particular psalm trains us to look to the only source where salvation is found. It is to look to heaven above, where God looks towards those who trust in Him. There's two ways or two particular halves in which we can divide this psalm. First, we'll consider the matter of singing in verses 1 to 12, and then the matter of waiting in verses 13 to 22. So, singing and waiting. You see here in these opening uh, three verses the repeated command that we are to sing to the Lord to sing of His steadfast love and mercy. In fact, not just uh, to sing, like, oh, no, no, but it's, it's a shout for joy. Uh, this is a, a, a song that, that, that erupts from a robust confidence in the God who saves. Here, the emphasis is on that covenant faithfulness that the Lord shows to His own people. In fact, uh, the psalmist here speaks, as it were, of a double benefit uh, when it comes to singing praise. In verse 1, he says it, it's befitting for man to sing praise. You know, we are drawn, have our attentions drawn once again to the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What is man's chief end? What is the very thing for which we've been created to do? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How fitting it is for the human race to sing praise to God because that is the reason we have been made. There is an intrinsic beauty to man pursuing his chief end in life, the enjoyment of the living God. You have set eternity in man's heart, and man is restless until he finds his rest in you. Augustine writes in his Confessions, in him who is alone the fountain of our deepest delights. And yet, of course, we recognize that praise benefits not just man. Uh, as we pursue and accomplish the very thing for which we were created, the language there of befitting is, you could translate it, is, it is a lovely thing. And yet it is also pro the proper response 
to God. It benefits, as it were, God Himself. You see that here in verses 1 and verse 4. As upright men contemplate the Lord's upright word. Almost forms an envelope to this particular portion of the psalm. That as man enacts uh, uh, and practices the thing for which he, was, he is made, you see that his character begins to be conformed uh, to the word of God which never fails. That we are called to praise God not just for his word, but for his works. You see the repetition here of uh, descriptors for God's work in creation, that it is faithful, that it is righteous. Like a diadem in the sun, the earth radiates with the covenant faithfulness of God. The whole earth is full of the goodness and faithfulness of God. I'm not sure what translation you're using here, but when you look there at verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Some have His covenant faithfulness. Others, His loving kindness or His goodness. You find in the Old Testament, this particular Hebrew word is translated in about 30 different ways. It tries to get at the robustness of this word. This word that speaks of God's covenant fidelity to His promise. That word chesed. Here we find that God is faithful to His promise. His promises are good. Like the banks of the Mississippi in springtime, it superabounds and overflows. Psalm 23, David uses the same word there. So we are reminded that surely goodness and chesed, the covenant faithfulness of God, shall run me down and pursue me all the days of my life. And David's focus here in verse 5 is that the earth is full of these emblems and tokens of God's goodness and mercy. It helps us to understand what it is that the psalmist is doing here in the midst of of toil and trouble. As he essentially says, look around you and see the tokens of God's majesty and care for you. Here's the God who attends the funeral of every sparrow. Are you not of greater value than the birds of the sky? God has made the visible things uh, to help strengthen our faith and understand the character of the invisible God that He is in fact faithful in all that He says and does for the sake of His people. That leads us to the particular emphasis on the type of song that David calls on the people of God to sing. It comes in the mode of thanksgiving. We find the manner of this thanksgiving and the various descriptors seen in these opening five verses. Again, shout for joy. Not just mumble for joy. Not simply uttering it under your breath. 
here we find the word that's used here for singing and shouting used elsewhere can be described something like a war shout of jubilant happiness. I, I think the best example I can give, if you can imagine, or if you've seen reels from uh, the end of the Second World War, Victory in Europe Day, as news hits the streets in the U.S. that Hitler has been defeated, that the Nazis had surrendered, and there's so much singing Enjoy in the streets, there's that iconic picture of the sailor who, who grabs his gal. I hope it's his gal. And he kisses her. You have the, the ticker tape parades. I mean, that is the picture here. It's a war shout of victory. You think of Israel uh, as they stand on the other side of the banks of the Red Sea after Pharaoh's army has drowned in the sea and in Exodus 15, you have Moses' song of victory. The Lord, he has thrown Pharaoh and his army into the sea. Christ, their baptism, has delivered them from the forces of darkness. And that is the character in the form of praise that the people of God are called to partake in, knowing this, that the Lord will deliver you too from all of our sin and misery. It's a victory song accompanied by skillful melodies that proclaim all of his wonderful works. And here in verses 6 to 12, the psalmist surveys a snapshot of the landscape of praise offered by the redeemed, four things for which the Lord is to be praised. The first you see here, uh, and all these, these four things are given as examples of God's covenant faithfulness, of his steadfast love. His steadfast love is first seen in the act of creation. In verse 6, even here in verse 6, as uh, the words of the psalmist hint and glisten at the triune character of our God, where all things have been made by His Word and His Spirit. All things both visible and invisible, the heavens and all that is in them and all their hosts. Speaking there of the angelic armies. Not only is God to be praised for his faithfulness in the works of creation, but also in his work of providence over creation. You see that here in verse 7. We're reminded here that God is not some type of absentee landlord, uh, like a divine clockmaker who's, who's kind of built the artifice of creation and has now gone on vacation for a few thousand years. No, here is one who is intimately involved uh, in the creation that he has made. He hems in the chaotic deep, moves them into storehouses. He sets the waters in their place and he commands them like an obedient dog to stay put. Who is it who can speak and command the waters to stay in their place and the waters obey? Have you ever tried to do that? Uh, it is a futile gesture to try to yell at the Pacific Ocean to stay put. Yet the Lord speaks, and He has bounded it in its particular location as in a storehouse. 
Not only is the Lord to be pra- uh, praised for his providential care over creation, but also his sovereign power over the nations. You see that here in verses 8 uh, to 11, as the Lord is, uh, uh, as the people are commanded to, to worship the Lord with reverence and awe. Here, the psalmist calls upon, calls upon not just Israel, but he calls upon the nations to fear him. To fear him who holds such power to bind the cosmic depths. Of a God who has power not simply over the sky, the land, and the sea, but the one who also rules over the hearts of men. Though the nations might rage against the Lord, though the peoples plot against his anointed Messiah, the Lord laughs and brings their counsel to naught. Notice here in verses 10 and 11 as the emphasis is on God's royal will. Even as the counsel and plans of the nations are foiled, the counsel and plans of the Lord stand forever. What a striking contrast. You look at uh, the tyrants and dictators of this day and age, and it seems as if they can do whatever they want and get away with it. And yet this psalm tells us, no, 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 the Lord foils their plans. And whatever the Lord has ordained to do, it will surely come to pass. Here is a king who stands supreme and sovereign even over the mightiest kings of the earth. The Lord executes all of his holy will and he does it in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. And now we see here in verse 11 a contrast I should say, verses 11 and 12, a contrast between two different kingdoms, as it were. Even as the nations of the earth are foiled, now David focuses on one particular nation from among the nations. And says, there is one nation out of all the nations who is blessed, because they have the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their God. And that's what leads us to the fourth thing that uh, the people of God are called to praise the Lord for. Again, four things, examples of his covenant faithfulness over creation, over providence, over his sovereign power over the nations. But now in particular, verse 12, not only that he is sovereign over all the nations, but also that God exercises a special particular care over the redeemed. Right? The Lord rules over all things. And yet he especially rules over his people. He takes special care to work all things for the good of those whom he has chosen to be his special inheritance. Here David is speaking of the redeemed, bound up within a single nation under the old covenant, the nation of Israel, and now under the new covenant as the gospel spreads, it is transnational as the Lord draws in his elect from every nation. A reminder of the words of Paul to Ephesus that God has put all things under Christ's feet. All things. And yet the Lord has also given uh, Christ to be head over all things to the church. Here the focus is on how the redeemed uh, constitute the apple of God's eye. 
And so now David calls upon the redeemed to sing, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, evermore his praises sing, for his wonderful works in creation, providence, and in redemption. Because here are seen tokens of his faithfulness to his people from generation to generation. Well, now we find that the scene shifts as we move to the second half of this psalm from earth to heaven. Here, as David is called upon uh, the people of God to sing praises upwards to God who is in heaven, now we see in the second half of this psalm, God in heaven looking down and receiving the praises of man. And as the people wait for the Lord's response, there's uh, this repeated verb cluster you see here in verses 13 to 19 that, that focus on the divine gaze. Five times David speaks of the Lord looking down from heaven. Look in verse 13. He looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man. Verse 14, he looks out from where he sits. Verse 15, he observes all their deeds. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord is upon those who wait for him with eager longing and expectation. Here we find that the Lord who has created all things, the Lord who governs over all things, is the Lord who takes notice of all things. You think of the words of the chronicler in 2 Chronicles 16, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Again, that repeated emphasis, there is nothing that falls out the, uh, outside the purview of God's reign. The, the Lord does not suffer from tunnel vision. He does not have horse blinders on his eye. There is no, uh, he doesn't have a, as it were, kind of a peripheral field of vision that, uh, you know, I, can, I can't see anything behind about right here. No, we find with the Lord, it's, it's different. He sees everywhere. There, there are no blind spots for him. Nothing takes him by surprise. And yet, even though nothing takes him by surprise, David still emphasizes that there is something special that he takes notice of, even as he sees all things. Verses 16 to 19 What is it that the Lord takes notice of? Well, David's very emphatic say, well, it's, it's not in those who trust in themselves. Not in the man who takes stock in his own army, his own strength of arms, his own cavalry. In other words, the Lord's special care is not directed to the strong and self-sufficient. Rather, he takes special notice, looking from heaven upon verses 18 and 19, those who trust in him. Those who trust not in their own strength, but those who put their hope and trust in the Lord. But notice in particular what it is about the Lord that they trust in. Look at verse 18. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope in his Steadfast love. There's that word again. God's covenant faithfulness. 
I think that's the key to understanding the thematic unity here to this psalm. Even as the first half of the psalm speaks of the emblems and tokens of God's steadfast love and faithfulness throughout all the earth in his works of creation, providence, and redemption, the very person that the Lord takes special notice of is the one who looks towards God's steadfast love and waits eagerly for him. This is the one to whom the Lord will turn. This is the one to whom he directs his attention and will take special care of. He is the one, uh, this is the one whom the Lord will lift up from the miry depths and will, as the psalmist says here, deliver from death and sustain even in the midst of hunger and famine. And so as we come to those last three verses, we see the people of God's response to the Lord. If David has has begun to say, well, the Lord's focus is on those who wait for the Lord, notice how uh, the the climax of the psalm, uh, uh, how it comes here at the end. The people of God saying, our soul waits for you. Verse 20, verse 22, our soul waits for you. We continue to hope in your steadfast love. You are our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in you. Let your steadfast love, there's that word again, be upon us. Let us be a token of your mercy and covenant faithfulness. The church here, as it sings with the psalmist, as it joins in kind of this triumphal chorus, says, Lord, look upon us, not because we are strong, not because we are mighty, not because we have trusted in our own military strength or in our own moral uh, reserves, Look upon us because we wait for you and we hope in your steadfast love. Don't look at us because we are strong. Look at us because we are weak and because we look to you. Isn't that the very thing that the Lord said to Israel in Deuteronomy? I did not choose you because you were strong or mighty or or wealthy or of anything of notable importance. If anything, I chose you for the exact reason. So that you might know this that the Lord has chosen to love you for sheer mercy's sake alone. Not by works has He saved us, but according to His steadfast love and mercy. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness and faithfulness. He does not deal with our sins as they deserve, but rather has cast our sins from us as far as the east is from the west so does our god remove our transgressions from us and so we wait for you o god with eager expectation with that longing that longing of which our savior spoke of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as he gives this great promise that those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed for they will be satisfied that they shall eat and drink their fill with the righteousness of God Himself. 
In other words, this psalm is a psalm for the weak and the frail, calling us to shout for joy even in the midst of our own frailty and weakness. To put your hope in the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Where is that covenant faithfulness seen? Well, it's seen all around you. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord in creation, in providence, in redemption. And it's given as tokens that our faith might be strengthened when weak, that we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but learn to trust in the one whose ways are always that of steadfast love and mercy. Of course, God's steadfast love is signified nowhere more fully than in the cross and in the empty tomb and the ascension. As Christ, who bore our sins and the penalty of sin, did so for us, not because we were righteous, but the exact opposite, because we were in need of righteousness. And now He stands in the heavens, ever living to make intercession for you and me, that we might be able to draw near to the throne of grace, to find confidence, and to praise Him with that war shout of jubilation. Even when all circumstances to the contrary uh, seem to be shouting to us that God has abandoned us and that we are left to our own devices, the psalmist calls upon us to reorient our gaze and to look to heaven and to look at the world around us and see that the earth is indeed full of those emblems and tokens of God's covenant fidelity. And just as God has promised to the uh, Israel of old, so has He promised to His church today. And His promises do not fail. That all who come to Him, He will by no means cast out. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that You would strengthen us uh, in our weakness. That we would trust not in our own strength, uh, but that You would feed us with Your own mercy. That You would sustain us in the midst of Uh, trouble, that as you deliver your people through this passing age, uh, we could, uh, as every generation before us, continue to attest uh, that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, that great indeed is your faithfulness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.